will remain standing, if you would. And let's take out our copy of that wondrous word that God's given to us and in which he has revealed himself and revealed his will for us. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12 this morning. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 9 through 21, this whole section that we've been working through over the last uh, couple weeks, and we'll wrap up this morning. Paul giving to us here God's will for our lives. Let's hear it this morning. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. This is the word of the Lord our God to us. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you once again for this word that we have, for your speaking to us in this uh, wonderful, inerrant way through, through your word. And we pray now as this word is preached in our hearing that your Holy Spirit would attend that preaching, that you would illumine our hearts, that we would understand. We pray that your Spirit would also work in us, that we would desire to obey what we hear here this morning and that we would uh, indeed be able to obey by your grace, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we read just the last half of that chapter, but we've been looking at this whole 12th chapter over the last few weeks, a, a unit of of thought here that Paul has been giving us as he starts this second half, this uh, very practical half of the book of Romans. Uh, Do not be conformed to this world, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Paul says. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, Paul says. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that's been given to us, let us use those gifts, Paul says. Let love be genuine, Paul says. And now in verses 9 through 21, he's telling us how that genuine, sincere love for one another is to be shown. Shown to fellow Christians and especially to those with whom you worship from week to week, those with whom you serve God week in and week out, those brothers and sisters with you, uh, with whom you sit this morning. 
To you, Paul said, hate what is evil. Be glued to what is good. Love these brothers and sisters with whom you sit this morning. Love them as you do your own physical family. Literally. Zealously, fervently serve one another and serve God. Rejoice in your common hope in God and in His promises. Be patient in troubles, in trials. Be constant in prayer. Graciously giving to one another. Showing hospitality to friend and stranger alike. In genuine Christian sympathy, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Demonstrating a unifying thought with each other. Rejecting pride of all kinds and embracing the lowest of of people and the lowest of places in the church, recognizing that in Christ we are one. And showing great humility in regard to your own intellect, your own wisdom. That's what we've seen so far. Now that would be enough to keep us on our toes as we seek to do all of that. Not just on our toes, but would keep us on our knees as we seek to do that. But mixed in with these commands, these instructions that he has given to us that are really instructions for us in offering up our lives as a living sacrifice to God, as Paul commanded us back in verses 1 and 2, mixed in with with the idea of how we are to treat one another and to show these, these marks of a Christian, which is what these are as well, Paul has paid or is paying a substantial portion of attention on the question of how we are to demonstrate this love to those even outside of the church, to those who do not share our love of God, but are enemies of God and are enemies of we ourselves. Because a member of such a loving Genuinely loving, as we saw. Sharing, humble, zealous, gracious family. A member of such a community cannot help but see that attitude be shared with those even outside of that community, outside of that family. Now, we're certainly not saying that we erase the difference between the church and the world. Remember, we're commanded to not be conformed to the world, so we're not trying to to make the church like the world. But we are to demonstrate to the world what residents of the kingdom of God act like. That's what we're seeing here. What we act like reflecting, as we are to do, the love of the king of this kingdom himself, reflecting the love of Christ himself. And so to conclude our look, last time we sort of went a little bit out of order or grouped things a little differently and finished up looking at the commands that Paul gives here regarding how we deal with one another in the church. This morning, to conclude our look at this chapter, we want to look at those instructions regarding how we deal with those outside of the church. There's one in verse 14, and then verses 17 through 21 will give us the rest of them. 
In verse 14, we begin in our overall count. We said there were 25 instructions here. This will be number 19 of the 25 instructions for a living sacrifice. And it is this. It's there in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The whole verse really presents one instruction. Bless those who persecute you. Gives it positively, gives it negatively. Now, is it important how we treat those outside of the church? Well, Paul, and therefore God here, says, absolutely. Is it easy to to treat our enemies in loving ways? Well, I'll, I'll give the most generous answer and say it can be, but usually isn't. Because it isn't our natural tendency, even as Christians, we're still fallen. And it isn't our natural tendency uh, to do that. But isn't it our more natural tendency to hate those who hate us? To want to do evil to those who do evil to us? To seek our own pound of flesh in vengeance against those who cheat us or steal from us or or are antagonistic to us, maybe even violent toward us. Yes, that is our natural tendency. And so we need to be instructed, instructed in ways that, that help us to see how we are to deal with others, in ways that counter our fallen tendency in regard to those particularly who are unkind toward us, unfriendly toward us, antagonistic toward us, those who we would regard as enemies. We need here to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and that's what Paul is doing in these verses. And here Paul says, bless those who persecute you. And Paul, as well as other New Testament writers who say the same thing, gospel writers who say the same thing, in fact, the gospel writers are recording the words of Jesus who teaches us that we are not to act in certain ways against those who are against us. Jesus himself said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, what? Love your enemies. And, he says, pray for those who persecute you. That's Matthew 5.44 from the Sermon on the Mount. And here in verse 14 of Romans 12, Paul is, is echoing really those last words of that statement of Christ, where Christ said, pray for those who persecute you. Paul here says that we are to bless those who persecute us. That word bless there and throughout the New Testament, is is a Greek word, the word eulageo. And it's the word that we get the word eulogy almost directly from that. And it literally means a good word. When someone stands up at a funeral and gives a eulogy, they are giving a good report, typically, of the person that has died. I've never heard anyone stand up to give a eulogy and, and rip the person who has died. A eulogy is a good word. It means to speak a good word concerning someone. So it would mean here to pronounce good things upon the recipient. 
But here's the problem. I can pronounce good things upon you all day long. You can pronounce good things upon others all day long, but we have very limited ability to make those good things happen. The one who does have the ability to to really, truly bless you is God. So when Paul says, bless those who persecute you here, what he is saying is pray that God will bless those who persecute you, since he alone is one who can truly bless. That's why I say he is paralleling what Jesus said when Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. Pray that God will bless those who persecute you because we can't do it ourselves. Now, you might say, well, wait, if we can't bless those who persecute us, then why does the Bible say in many places, Psalm 103.1, Psalm 104.1, Psalm 134.1, seems to start a lot of the Psalms, the psalmist says, bless the Lord. How can we do that? Well, in those verses, it means that we thank the Lord for the blessings that he has given us. We magnify the Lord. We worship the Lord for what he has done. It's similar to how the scripture talks about us giving glory to God. Have you ever thought about that? Can you give glory to God? Not really. In the sense of adding to his glory, God is is the, the ultimately, infinitely glorious being. He has all glory in and of himself. We can't add to it. But rather, we give glory to God by recognizing the glory that He has, by reflecting that glory as much as we may back to Him. And we bless the Lord by praising Him for His manifold blessings to us. And we bless those who persecute us by coming to God and asking Him to bless them, to give good things to them. And Paul says that is what we should do for our enemies, for our persecutors. Although we are to, verse 9, abhor what is evil, we are still to call on God to actually do good to those who are our enemies. He says, bless and do not curse them. Do not call down God's judgment upon them. But we are to call down his blessing upon them, to beseech God to bless them. And how hard is that to do? Very hard. You know it. I know it. But beloved, that is what we are called to do. Why? Because we are called to be like Christ. That's why. Who, Peter said in 1 Peter 2.22, while he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. In fact, if you need an example, if you need the example, remember, if you will, the horror of the crucifixion. What Christ was put through, the shame, the pain, the injustice of crucifying the sinless, righteous creator, made man who came and healed disease and sickness, who cast out demons, who made blind eyes see and lame legs to walk, his own people cried out for him to be crucified and the Romans carried it out 
And in the, the depth of this torturous betrayal of crucifixion, what did Jesus do? Well, if it's me, they're all toast. They are all straight to hell. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. But what did Jesus do? He blessed those who persecuted him. Luke 23, 34, Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's our example. Paul says, let us exhibit that kind of love even to our enemies. Bless and do not curse them. By the way, if that's how we are to treat our enemies, do you see how we should treat our brothers and sisters in the Lord? How loving we should be towards them. But we are to bless. We are to pray for God to pour out good on those who persecute us. Considering this, that if he does, if he pours out the ultimate good upon these people, which would be what? To convert them. If he does that, what has he done? Well, he, had then, he would then have turned our enemy into our friend, into our family, into our brothers and sisters, and that is the best outcome we could pray for. And we should. That's the situation we're all in, that you and I were all in, isn't it? We were enemies. We were God's enemies. And God did the same for us. In fact, Paul, in fact, Paul mentions it here in this very book back in chapter 5. He says, when we were weak, Christ died for us. He says, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God because why? Christ died for us. God made us who were his enemies to be his friends. In fact, to be his sons and daughters. And that's true for every single Christian who is sitting here this morning. So in regard to our enemies, we are to pray for God to do good and to bless them, not to curse them. Even when we look in the, in the Old Testament at the imprecatory prayers and the Psalms, they are focused on the, on the enemies of God and are asking God to do what God has already promised to do, for Him to judge His enemies. Not our enemies, not because of our vengeance, not because of our inability or our unwillingness to pray for God to bless them, but because they have offended and have stubbornly insisted on remaining an enemy of God. And so for us, in regard to our personal enemies, those who persecute us, we are to pray that God bless them. To live a life that is a life of, of sa- a living sacrifice of thanksgiving, that's how we are to pray concerning our enemies. That's what we are to do. As Christ did, Father, forgive them. Lord, bless them. God, convert them by your grace. Let that be our Christian version of retribution. Now, number 20 is similar, but not identical. It's down in verse 17. So we took a look at 15 and 16 last week. They refer to dealing with people in the church, but now we're continuing to look at those 
uh, ways that we are to deal with those outside of the church. Verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So a little different. Do you notice the, the difference there? It's subtle, but it's important, that shift here. The last point instructed us on how we are to ask God to bless them, how he is to, to treat them and, and, and do for them to pray for God to do good to those who persecute us. Now we are looking at how we are to act towards them. And first, we are given the negative, as so often here in these, in these verses. Do not repay or repay no one evil for evil. Very basic. And, and very basic for the rest of the chapter here. Really, this idea is going to be repeated in essence in all the rest of the remaining points that we have, the remaining commands, the instructions. By the way, we're calling them instructions, but let's not forget that when the Bible gives us instructions, they are commands. These aren't suggestions. Repay no one evil for evil. Before, like before, such a hard thing to do, if we're honest. So hard, so, and so important that Paul is going to spend now really the rest of this chapter on this topic. And it ends up being almost equal space devoted to how we treat one another and how we treat those outside of the church, how we deal with our enemies. And Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. Again, we are by nature people who want to do that. We are notoriously vengeful people. From the very beginning, when Cain became jealous because Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God and his wasn't, his immediate response was revenge. And he repaid evil actually for good. So it went from there, the idea of revenge. But the mindset of the Christian. And notice that word, mindset. This is what our mind is to be set on, beloved. Our mindset is never to be revenge. Now that certainly applies to those within the church, but it also applies to those who do evil from us from outside the church as well. That is not to be part of our vocabulary, part of our, our toolkit of how to deal with people. Revenge is out. This is one of those things that, that demonstrate the Christian mindset of a redeemed person that we do not seek retribution. More on that as we go through this. Not only are we to pray for those who persecute us, as Jesus commanded, but we are to avoid doing ourselves evil back to them. Over there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. How is it that by doing that we may be sons of our Father in heaven? Well, again, it's because that is of the nature of God. He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If God does it, so should we. Jesus goes on there and says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's not enough. It's not praiseworthy. It's not even obedient for us to just love those that we love and hate those that we don't love or that don't love us. If we love those that we love, Jesus is saying here, big deal. Everybody does that. But the transformed mind, the mind of a living sacrifice, loves even his enemies. That is how we are to live. Verse 17 says, we are to do what is honorable in the sight of all. We are to do what is honorable, what is good. It's interesting that he says here, not just in God's sight, but in the sight of all. Act honorably. Act honorably in regard to your enemy. Paul even says here, give thought to do what is honorable. Give thought to it. Be intentional in this, Christian. Plan that way. Think that way. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 8.21. Listen, he said, we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Purpose in your heart, beloved, to act honorably. And that means not vengefully to others. On to number 21. In verse 18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And again, this really continues the same idea. We're called here to be peace lovers, peace seekers, peace makers, peace sustainers. Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, in a very in a way very similar to what we read earlier, says, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall become the son, be called the sons of God. We are to pursue peace with everyone, Paul is saying. Live peaceably, he says, with all. That, that too is very often contrary to the way that we act. Some are worse about that than others. There are some who are always looking for a fight, always looking for a confrontation, who love seems to just stir things up. But it should not be us. Now, recognizing what we're up against, Paul gives us two qualifiers for this here, which point to the fact that we, we, this is admittedly asking a lot in our world. He says there, if possible, so far as it depends on you. What does that tell us? It's not always possible. It doesn't always depend on us. We can try and pursue peace with someone, and yet we may not be successful. But, Paul says, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live live peaceably with all. You extend the olive branch. You take the first step to resolve the issue. You live with others, if at all possible, in a way that results in peace. Even with people, especially here in this context, with people with whom you disagree. 
even if people, even with people who hate you, who persecute you, who treat you unfairly, who mock you, you be the peacemaker in every situation. And if you can't, if they will not be appeased, if they continue to do evil, you do not repay evil for that evil, but pray that God will do good to them and you purposefully do what is honorable in your relations with them. That is what we are called to do. And the next instruction then expands and gives us the theological basis for these instructions. It's number 22 in our list, and it's in verse 19. He says, Beloved, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Beloved, he says, speaks to you know, brothers and sisters. Listen to me on this, Paul is saying. Never avenge yourself. That's where all this is sort of heading, right? Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Remembering, first, that if the world hated Christ, they will hate you. We are reminded still that vengeance is never our place is not to be our response. Again, Matthew 5.38 is pertinent here. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Proverbs 20.22 says, do not say, I will repay evil. God is the judge. Justice is an attribute that God has in perfection. Meeting out justice is God's job, His place, not mine, not yours. Whether you or I choose to seek revenge, whenever we seek to repay for wrongs done, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. A place, a work, a job, as they say, that is way above our pay grade. Now, there is a situation where God has delegated authority to to deal with situations, delegated that to an institution of his establishing to deal with avenging wrongdoing. And and interestingly enough, we're going to look at that in the very next chapter. But before we get to that, Paul says, as regards you, don't do it yourself. It is not your place. Just as God has given man to be head over the household and elders over the church, he has set up structures for retribution and justice, and you as an individual are not that structure. And ultimately, God is the one who will right all the wrongs, and he will. It is he who will punish the wrongdoers. It is he who will avenge the wrongs done against him and against his beloved people, those who are the apple of his eye. Deuteronomy 32.43 says, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. 
And then Paul quotes from that same chapter and quotes God himself who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. What a simple statement. What a clear statement. Don't be vengeful. Don't avenge yourself. Leave it to God because God said vengeance belongs to him and he will repay. But see, here's the problem. We don't trust God. We don't trust his word. We don't trust his his statement there. We think, very often, if I don't handle this, they're going to get away with it. Righteousness is going to receive a black eye if I don't extract a pound of flesh for this. How wrong, how unbelieving of God it is for us to think that way. Because God's wrath against all sin is perfect. His wrath against sin, His desire to to right wrongs is greater than yours is. And His memory is better than yours is. His sense of justice is perfect. His means of punishment is unlimited. No one will escape the justice of God. We have God's word on it. Believe it. Don't worry about it. He will by no means clear the guilty, he said. His holiness will defend his righteousness. And you and I, beloved, are not judge, we are not jury, we are not executioner. God is. Let us leave the righting of wrongs to him. Now, of course, we hope and we pray that God will glorify himself by showing grace to them. That God will, will turn them to himself. And by the way, that also doesn't mean that God's righteousness, that his justice is dispensed with. Because if he converts a person and brings them to himself, then the justice of God concerning them was not discarded, but it was met. Where was it met? By whom was it met? You know the answer. By Jesus on the cross. This is the hope for our enemies, that they will become our friends through the grace of God. But if not, then God will deal with it. God will deal with them. It is not our place to do it. Let us not do it ourselves. And Paul goes on for number 23. He says, to the contrary. On the other hand, here's the the other side of that. And it brings us to our 23rd instruction. In verse 20, he says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Again, same thing. Here is to be our response. Love. Doing what is honorable. Goodness. Here is the demonstration of our love that is genuine from verse 9. In regard to our enemies. To not treat him like an enemy but to treat him like a friend. If he's hungry, 
Give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do good. Do a kindness to him. When I'm counseling people and and they have a problem with forgiveness or a, a disagreement with another person, I will always tell them to do something specific, something sacrificial, and something loving to the person. Do something loving to them. And Paul says the same thing here. By the way, I got it from him. He didn't get it from me. This quote in this verse is from the book of Proverbs. The wisdom. From Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. And the part that Paul quotes ends with this. He says, by so doing, by by treating an enemy like a friend, by doing kindness to him, He says, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's an interesting phrase. It's a difficult phrase. It's it's, it's hard to to understand exactly what is being said there. And it's been debated. But the most common, and I think the correct understanding of this, is that the idea of heaping burning coals on your enemy's head by doing kindness is a is a metaphor for bringing a burning sense of shame on them. There are some people that say that it is a picture of judgment coming upon them. But I don't think that fits the context that Paul is talking about here. Because he's talking about how we are to treat people and that we are to do good to them. But our kindness will often lead to our enemy being ashamed for their actions. Now, there are some people that are so heartless that that doesn't happen for. But it is a rare person who does not feel shame when his evil is specifically met with kindness. If you don't know that, try it sometime. And think of Proverbs 15.1, where God reminds us that a gentle answer turns away wrath. By the way, the end of the verse that that Paul is quoting from back in Proverbs 25, it ends by saying this, and the Lord will reward you. That's a great motivation for us to do that, isn't it? Well, finally, Paul ends the chapter here with two very brief instructions that together sort of sum up what he is saying here in regard to our dealings with, with our enemies, with evil people. First, and it's number 24, he says, do not be overcome by evil. What a great statement. Sometimes it seems we have no choice. Sometimes evil, it seems, is all around us. And that is true. That we're all but drowning in it. And that we are near to being overcome by it. But Paul says, we have a choice. We don't have to be overcome by it. And in fact, he says, don't be overcome by it. He's saying, he's not saying if we will experience it or not. We saw earlier that Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation. You will have trials. You will have difficulty. Jesus said if the world hated me, know that it hates you. So it's not a question about if we will experience. It's not a question of when it will come. It will come often enough. It's not a question uh, of its intensity or its duration. But our choice is found in how 
we respond to it? Will we respond, will you respond in kind to the evil that is shown to you by repaying evil for evil, seeking vengeance, even perhaps telling yourself, well, in this case, it's justified. In this case, it's the right thing to do. Paul says it's not the right thing to do. So will we respond in that way, or will we leave that to God and let him deal with it? Will we actually ask him to bless them while we do good to them in the name of the Lord? Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. But he gives us the answer to it in verse 21. At the end of the verse, and this is our 25th instruction, he says, but overcome evil with good. You know, in that quote that I I just quoted from Jesus who said, in this world you will have tribulation, how does he conclude that statement? Do you remember? He says, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And because he did, beloved, we can overcome evil. We can overpower it when it comes into our lives. How? Paul says, with good. By doing good in the face of any situation, we reflect the nature of Christ who has overcome sin, the world, the devil, and who has given his spirit to us to guide us into all truth and to work his fruit in our lives. And what is the primary first listed work of the spirit in Galatians 5.22? The fruit of the spirit is love. So Paul started here with the command to let love be genuine. And he ends with this, that we can overcome evil with good. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We can do this. Even when it is difficult. Even when it is contrary to what we might want to do. This is always the appropriate Christian response to overcome evil with good. It is God's will for each of us as we refuse by God's grace to be conformed to this world, as we refuse to take on the values of the world, as we refuse to to become like the world in the way that they would respond. By God's grace, we are to rejoice in being transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might offer up in every day, in every way, a true living sacrifice of thanksgiving for the mercy that God has shown to us. And these instructions are means to that end. They are the means of showing that thanksgiving. Let us seek to do it every day and in every way. And to that, let us say, amen. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for your instructions to us. And we thank you for your spirit, Lord, because we recognize that as we've looked at these things over these past weeks, that, that they are not things that we can do on our own. Our, our nature, being fallen as it is, 
does not want to, is not able on our own to do this, Lord, but you have given us your spirit who is working in us, who has given us a new heart and is working to give us a new life, a life that is lived in line with your word, a life that is lived in conformity to the life of our Savior Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would do that. We pray that you would give us this mind. We pray that you would continue to to transform us day by day through the difficult method, the difficult trials, the difficult procedure of being made more like Christ. And we will rejoice and give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.